How many of you guys have ever watched the show Dirty Jobs with Mike Rowe? Anybody ever seen that show? Have you ever wanted to barf watching the show? Like the guy's job who was to replace the valves in the sewage treatment plant. I was watching that one and I was like, I'm so glad that's not my job. You ever seen that one? And then, then, then he was at a, a pork processing plant. And it made me not want to eat bacon ever again. Y'all, you ever seen that? And I've watched some of those shows at times and I think, I'm glad that's not my job. And then, then, I, then I think of crazy jobs uh, in, in, in our world. I was out in Kansas City this past summer and I remember I was talking to Barb on the phone. And while I'm talking to Barb, I open up the blinds at about 7.30, 8 o'clock that morning. And there's this uh, Weston a couple of blocks over. And I'm looking at this Weston. And all of a sudden, I noticed this scaffold about 64s up. And these two dudes that looked about that big hanging on this scaffold cleaning windows. And I got butterflies in my stomach watching it. And I remember telling Barb, I've got to shut the blinds. This is making me sick. Y'all ever feel that way? Right? It's like, man, I'm glad that's not my job. There is an annual award given. I I didn't know this, but there's an annual award given called, that's not my job. And so I was looking at some of this and I started laughing. There's this photo that was taken out of Arizona. And and this photo out of Arizona is absolutely mind-blowing. There's a dead armadillo laying in the middle of the road. And the driver of the truck and the guy striping lines concluded, that's not my job. And then another one, I mean, you guys who do construction would appreciate this. We're not going to move that clock off that wall. There's no way. Hey, 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 Bubba, just bend the copper around it. Have you ever made that statement all? That's not... My job, the story is told about four people named everybody and somebody, anybody, and nobody. There was an important job to be done, and everybody was sure that somebody would do it. Anybody could have done it, but nobody did it. Somebody got angry because it was everybody's job. Everybody thought anybody can do it, but nobody realized that everybody wouldn't do it. And it ended up that everybody blamed somebody when nobody did what anybody could have done. That's not my job. And I study the life of Jesus and I'm blown away. Seriously, when, when, you, when you think about who he is, God in flesh, that he is deity, he is Lord, he's master and ruler. And I start to study a lot of how Jesus went about doing things. And I'm like, he did the ridiculous he, he did. He absolutely pushed against the cultural norms of that day and he violated so many patterns that were in establishment of that day, I'm like, why did you do what you did? And why did you do it the way you did it? Open your bulletin, John chapter 13. If you got your Bible, you can jog there. But I want you to see this. Incredible story. Uh, right before Jesus is to go to the cross, and I'm talking about days and just hours away from his crucifixion, he does the ridiculous. He does that which is not his job. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come forth from God and he was going back to God, he got up from supper, he laid aside his garments, taking a towel, he girded himself. 
Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments back up and reclined at the table, he said to them, do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right for doing so. That's who I am. But if I, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I give you an example that you should do as I did. Truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Now, it's crazy when you study this text. And it's amazing when you contemplate how what Jesus did rebuked the pride of his disciples. Now, these guys are probably 19, 20, 21 years old. We've established that they're young when Jesus calls uh, these guys to follow him. They had just had this conversation and this dialogue amongst themselves of which one of us is the greatest. And they were really uh, trying to play this pecking order game with Jesus like, who's your main man out of all of us? And then right here, right in these last hours before he's to be crucified, he does the unthinkable. You, you see, uh, in that culture, it was sandals. In that culture, it was dusty roads, which led to dirty feet. And so part of the protocol in that day, when you had guests into your home, you had a slave who was the low man on the totem pole, if you will. And this slave's job was to wash the feet of the guest of this wealthy man as you come into his house. And so even a Hebrew slave in that day could not be delegated the responsibility of washing feet because it was below him. And so usually it was a Samaritan or a Gentile or whatever. And it's like, that, that, that is such a low assignment. And, and there was these cultural norms of that day that you did not violate. You didn't press against them. And so when Jesus does that, he crosses every line. It was never... It was never known for a superior to go to that which was socially inferior and do something like this. And so what Jesus establishes is this. In God's kingdom, listen, all people are equal. You see, under the old covenant, the Jew thought, based on lineage, uh, lineage and heritage, hey, hey, we're God's people. But when the gospel of Jesus comes, he establishes all people are equal. It doesn't matter what your socioeconomic portfolio is. It doesn't matter how many degrees you've got. It doesn't matter what your race is. It doesn't matter. All people are equal. Paul would capture this in Galatians 3, verses 28 and 29, when he says... There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus, which establishes the fact that the ground at the foot of the cross is level, and we all get to God the same way through repentance and responding to the gospel. He goes on to say, if you belong to Jesus Christ, then you are heirs according to the promise. 
Now, what does God uh, call us to do in our society today? He calls us to lay aside all of our social prejudices that would cause us to think superiority or inferiority, and he calls us to become servants just as he was, and he calls us to model what he did with his disciples. He uses the phrase, what I've done, you ought to do, and the word ought to in the Greek implies this. Don't miss it. It implies you're, de- uh, you're indebted to duplicate what I've done. It, it, it doesn't say I'm suggesting to you that this would be something you might want to entertain. When Jesus says this is what you're to do, it is a command, not a suggestion. And I think we all would be wise to pay attention to the words of Jesus. So do you know what I've done to you? Then he says, then go give your lives away in selfless acts of service to extend my love to this world. Go serve. I want to give you six principles. The attitude of a servant. The attitude of a servant. Six principles. I want you to get these. Number one, servants know who they are. They know whose they are. They know who they belong to. Verse 3 says, Jesus knowing Jesus knowing that he had come from the Father and he was about to go back to the Father. Here's what I've come to understand. When you don't know who you are and like who you are and you can't be who you are, and when you don't know what your real purpose for existence is, when you don't know what your purpose for existence is, and you don't know who you are, you place so many self-induced parameters around yourself of being able to serve. When when people don't know who they are, they can't give their life away because they don't even know what their life is about. And so what Jesus establishes is, I know who I am. I know where I came from. I know where I'm going. Here's here's something you got to know. Servants put others first. Servants are not about promoting or protecting their own power or importance. Anytime you meet a person who's all addicted to their ego and their title and they have to let you know what they've accomplished and how good they are, they're screaming, I'm so stinking insecure, I have nothing else to bring to the dance. And for Jesus being God, Yeshua HaMashiach, the one that was going to die, when he humbles himself and he takes the towel and he humbles himself before these disciples... You're the superior. You're you're Lord. You're our rabbi teacher. You're the one we're following. We're to be serving you. And he says, stop it. You've got to understand what I'm doing to you. If you know who you are and realize who you belong to and understand what your purpose is, it puts you in a position to be able to free you to authentically serve others. Principle two, servants will lay aside personal rights because they find joy in serving other people. Servants will lay aside personal rights because they find joy in serving other people. Verse four says, Jesus, laying aside his garment, took a towel. Now, if you study scripture, garment or the word robe appears many times in scripture. And every time you see the word garment or robe, it is always referencing a person's identity. 
So when Jesus takes off this robe, this rectangular-shaped robe that he was wearing as a rabbi, and there's a lot of study you can do here. They had these things called Z-I-T, Z-I-T, zitzits on the bottom where these ropes had been tied, and it declared their authority or their declaration to serve God in the law. Remember the woman who had the hemorrhaging of blood disorder, and she reached out and touched the hem of his garment? She was touching his identity. Remember when the prodigal son was raised in hell and comes back and the father says, break out the robe. What was he saying? Break out the robe. It's a statement that he's righteous. I'm not looking at him based on what he's done. I'm based on him. I'm I'm looking at him based on who I am. Get the robe and put on him. So when Jesus takes off his robe, his garment, what he's actually doing is laying aside his identity. Philippians 2 says that he stepped out of the portals of heaven and he laid aside and took on the form of man. He was always Lord. He never forfeited his lordship and he never forfeited his deity. But when it came to, look at me, look look at me, I'm a servant. He takes the towel and puts it around him and he says, we're here to serve. We're not here to Lord. We're here to care for people. We're not here to dominate people. And I'm telling you right now, when when you realize that you can lay aside personal rights and there's great joy in serving others, really the sign of the saved is how well do they serve those who can do nothing for them. When there's no benefit and there's no, what can I get out of this relationship? When when you get to that place, you, you really start entering to a pretty cool place because you're not doing what you're doing for what you can get. You're doing it because maybe there's authentic compassion in your heart. Servants recognize that their authority is limited. That's one of the things I wrote. No individual has total authority over another person. We're all equal again in the sight of Christ. And and so for Christ to do it, he was Lord. All authority had been given to him in heaven and on earth. But when he did what he did, he established a pattern for what the new covenant follower was to practice. Make sense? Serving. Servants know, ultimately, that they're accountable to those that they lead. So when God places us in a position of pastoral leadership, any of our team, whoever it is, we're accountable to the people that we lead. That's the reason James says, not many of you should desire to be teachers because you're you're going to incur a much stricter judgment. You're accountable to God. You're accountable to the people you lead. So just go ahead and give your life away as a servant and don't worry about jockeying for a position because your breath don't belong to you anyway. And in any given moment, God can say, give me back my breath and we're without options. Just go serve. Third principle. Servants can risk serving because they trust that God is in control. Who's ultimately in control? If I do not trust that God is ultimately in control, I'm going to continue to try to manipulate outcomes constantly. I'm going to continue to leverage what I do, and I'm going to be a con man in my journey. But if I trust you're in control, vengeance is yours, payment is yours, ever how you want to do this thing, it belongs to you, then it frees me up to say, I don't have to be in control anymore. And I think one of the greatest declarations you can make as you start this new year is to realize you're not in control. When you start to realize you're not in control, it really gets you in a position where you're able then to authentically do life. I'm talking to my buddy, Eric. Eric is a great friend of mine. We went to high school together. And uh, Eric was in our wedding 
And uh, Eric went in to have hip replacement. And when he did, they found out that he had a blood clot, so they postponed his hip replacement. And so as they started doing these tests, they realized he had had a light heart attack. And so they had to get some things right before they did his hip replacement. And so he goes in for this surgery, and as they're doing this hip replacement, that, that main bone coming out of the hip right there, it shatters. And when that bone shattered, they're saying, something's not right here. And they started doing tests on Eric, and they realized he had bone cancer. Then they started doing more uh, tests on Eric, and they realized he had cancer in his back, and he had cancer in his lungs. And then more tests realized he had cancer in his brain. And so traditional medicine basically said, we don't know what we're going to do with you. And we don't know if there's any treatment we can offer you. And so Eric went to Mexico, and he was down working with a doctor there. And uh, he and I, we started dialoguing back in early November when all this stuff started happening. And there had been this gap in relationship. And, and, and I was talking to Eric, and I went down to Noonan to spend this time with him. And I said, how are you doing? And he, he said, you know, for 53 years, I haven't walked with Jesus. For 53 years, I haven't acknowledged God in my life. And he said, a couple weeks ago, I really do feel like I repented and asked Christ to save me. And I said, well, that, that, that's good, Eric. And he goes, but I'm, I'm brand new at this. So he goes to Mexico, and I talked to him on the phone last night. I said, Eric, how are you doing? How are you feeling, buddy? Well, I feel good. I mean, I don't know what my blood work is going to look like or whatever. And he said, but let me tell you what happened. I said, cool. He said, I told you I trusted Christ. He said, I got peace now. He said, I got joy in my soul. And he said, I'm a brand new baby Christian, Tim. He said, but while I was in Mexico for 29 days, I started in Matthew, and I devoured it. I finished the book of Revelation while I was there. And he said, I want you to know, whether God heals me or not, I trust that he's in control. I trust that he's in control. How do you risk serving? I trust that you're in control. If you're not in control, then I'm in bad shape every day. Because I'm only then able to trust my own resources and my own intellect and knowledge of how to get life done. Once we get there, Dallas, it's amazing to say, I trust. So here's what I wrote. A servant of Christ has nothing to prove and nothing to lose. As I trust that you're in control, I don't have anything to prove any longer. I'm not up here on Sunday morning trying to figure out what kind of grade I can get from the people that listen to me. I have nothing to prove anymore, but I have nothing to lose because I'm secure in Christ Jesus. He said, no man will ever snatch you out of my hand. I'm like, so we can preach a message of grace and love and mercy and forgiveness. Servants, since they trust that God's in control, they don't care who gets the credit. It's amazing how much gets done when nobody cares who gets the credit. When you don't have to fish for dig me statements and hero statements and people to applaud who you are. When we don't care who gets the credit, it's amazing how we're liberated to walk in the dust of Yeshua. Now, here's the reality is I trust God. It doesn't mean that I'm immune from betrayal and rejection. As I started contemplating this, I trust that you're in control. But some of those that you serve the greatest will betray you the most. Some of those that you choose to give your life away to will betray you. Jesus had a Judas. And I remember God had to teach me this years ago. There was a player here in Atlanta, and we loved that family. But I remember this guy was going through some trauma in his life. And God said, I want you to pray over him, but I want you to wash his feet. And I did. 
And some of the greatest rejection that Barb and I ever suffered in ministry came from this guy and his wife. But what God showed me in this was it was okay because how can I identify, identify with Yeshua, Jesus, and expect not to be rejected? Amen. If he's the one that I'm chasing and he's the one that I'm following, then I had to resolve that it's okay. It's okay. And if I only serve those who are going to like me and those who are going to bless me and those who are going to give to me, then I will not serve because I'm constantly trying to evaluate what is your motive before I do what I do. And God says, that's the wrong question. What is your motive before you do what you do? So my motive before God is constantly on trial as we do ministry. Jesus said, greatest in the kingdom is the one who serves. Point four, servants multiply their leadership by empowering other people. Disciples make disciples. When Jesus said, come follow me, I believe in you. You've got what it takes to be my disciple. Jesus empowered these young guys. Peter didn't have all this seminary training when he stood at Pentecost and preached this first message and thousands of people responded. What Jesus did was he empowered these guys. Even when he sent out the 70, he empowered these guys and he gave them a lot of freedom and flexibility in what he was doing. The reason the top-down leadership model for me doesn't work is because the guy at the top, when he calls all the shots, he never puts the followers in position to believe they've got what it takes. And so if the ground is equal and all people are created equally in Christ Jesus, we're all on the same playing field. Some may have different gifts than others. That's okay. Some have better knowledge than others. That's okay. But we're all in this thing together and we're able to empower other people on the horizontal because we're just one member of the body of Christ and he's the head. Come on. So... The cross, Loganville, is committed to the growth of fellow disciples. We believe that every person that walks in this room, that walks on this camp, campus, is a candidate for the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit to bring about transformation in your journey. And we want to be conduits used by God that God can breathe life in and through so that every person can experience maturation and spiritual growth and development. And when that happens, the city of Loganville becomes impacted, Walton and Gwinnett becomes impacted, and Georgia becomes impacted, and the U.S. becomes impacted because people now are empowered by the Holy Spirit to go into their Jerusalems and Judeas and Samarias and the remotest parts of the earth to be difference makers for the kingdom filled by the Holy Spirit. That's what God's calling us to do. So, number five, servants know that when they're following Jesus— there's no pressure to lead. Leadership, properly defined, is followship. When I'm walking in the dust of Yeshua Jesus, there's no pressure to lead. Again, using Eric as an example, I'll never forget when I first came to faith in Christ. I really did repent of my sin and ask Christ to save me in 1985. Now, I thought I was trusting Christ to lead me. Now, my early marinade was in some pretty harsh kind of Baptist flavor stuff, if you will. And when I got saved, immediately they said, go get a haircut. You need to go out and start telling people about Jesus. I'm like, okay, that's what you do. 
And so I thought that's what you did, and so that's what I did, but it was really more of an ambush approach to sharing Jesus with people. Hey, if you were to die today and stand before God, where would you spend your eternity? You realize if you don't turn, you're going to burn. And it was some of that kind of stuff that I got introduced to. And I remember going to Eric and saying, hey, you realize, dude, you need Jesus. And I thought I was doing it in love, but my methodology had a lot, a lot that it needed to be worked on. And I was talking to Eric again last night. And I said, Eric, I got to tell you, I'm sorry for how I ambushed you out of the gate. My why was right. I wanted you to know Jesus, but my what and how sucked royally. Because I thought it was my job to lead. I thought it was my job to convert. I thought it was my job to convince. But when you're following Jesus, you have no pressure to lead. You don't have to become attached to an outcome. You can trust that the Holy Spirit is able to do much more exceedingly abundantly than you can ask or think. And I had to get to the point where I was like, yeah, you can share Christ, but you don't have to ambush him. And so Eric said, I want to share with people what's going on in my life, but I want to bang them over the head with the Bible. I said, well, don't bang them over the head with the Bible. Just share with them what Jesus is doing in your life. You don't even have to t say, well, let me tell you what he's doing in my life. And do you realize he what? You're not there yet. You're on Gerber's. You're taking baby steps. You're what about Bob right now? It's okay. It's okay. But share with them what the Christ is doing. There is no pressure to lead. Come follow me. He didn't say go lead for me. Just, 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 just. Come to me if you're tired and weary. Come to me. I'll give you rest. So here's what I wrote. Servants live from God. They don't live for God. It's an established truth that we teach here. So when I'm living from God, I understand John 15 and the principle that all God's asking me to do is to abide in him 24-7, to remain with him, to pray with him, to talk with him, to meditate with him. So when he's living his life in and through me, I no longer have to live for him. I get to live from him. And when I'm living from him, it's his life now that's being manifest. Servants realize that they're to lead by influence and not by intimidation. If you have to intimidate people to get a response that you want, that's not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes to us in a soft, gentle voice most often and says, shh, shh, stop that. Now, now, now let's, let's work on this area of your life. Principle six, servants seek God, not positions or titles. Servants seek God, not positions or titles. Jim was here when they first interviewed me, and I've shared this story. But I remember the guy sent me a questionnaire, Scott and some of them, and they're like, what is your resume? My resume. What is your credentials? What is your titles? My resume is my life, my wife, and my kids. What's your resume? Your resume has nothing to do with how many years you went to college and how many PhDs or masters or, I'm not saying it's wrong to get them, but if that's what I'm leaning into that gives me identity and relevance, I got problems. What, what, what's your resume? It's not a title. It's a testimony. It's not a 
position. It's a purpose. That's my resume. So I'll never forget when I sat down with Nick. And the first time I ever met Nick, I met him over by the Mall of Georgia. And I said, uh, so tell me about yourself, your story. So he starts telling me a story. When did you come to faith in Christ? When did you really start to, to press into Jesus? And he started telling me. So I didn't ask him, how many music classes did you have? Who taught you guitar? How many worship training seminars did you go to? I remember listening to his heart. And I said, so your cousin Isaac is the lead singer of this group called The Fray. Pretty big name group. Mac Powell of Third Day is the one that gave me your number and introduced me to you. Let me ask you a question, Nick. What do you want to do? Do you want to be famous? And he goes, no, I want to lead worship. Now, your cousin's famous, and you've played some gigs with Mac, and he's famous. What do you want to do? I want to be a dad that gets to raise my kids every day, and I want to be a part of a church that I can lead worship. Is that, is that really what you want to do? I'd never heard him sing. I'd never heard him play. Mac told me he could play, and if Mac said he could play, then he could play, because I don't know what playing looks like. I'm a baseball dude, not a music guy. And I listened to one video, and I'm like, I like that dude's heart. Then he and Lisa came over and sat down and we talked with them. And I never said, give me your resume. You'll realize that this staff here is filled with a bunch of ragamuffins. Trevor and Steve are probably the two smartest ones on staff academically. I told you I graduated in the third of the class that made the upper two-thirds possible. Trevor was a lot better than that. (laughs) Nick went to Kennesaw State for a little while. Mike came out of Snellville and joined the Navy (laughs) and lived on a submarine. But I'll tell you, Mike Monroe is one of the smartest intellectual guys I've ever hung out with in my life. And so is Nick. But it's not their resume. It's that they seek God and not titles or positions. That's what makes Trevor so attractive and Steve and Sammy and our staff and Mickey and whoever. When I look, I mean, come on. Julie... Our administrative assistant, we know she's not that intelligent. She went to Auburn. But here's the thing. (laughs) Just listen. But what makes her so qualified is her heart for Jesus. We mess with Julie all the time, don't we? (laughs) I mean, they don't know if they're the war eagles or tigers. They don't even know what they are down there, but... And we play with Julie all the time. But what makes it attractive is it's seeking God. And Paul would say regarding a servant in 1 Corinthians, he said, let a man regard us in this manner, servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Let other people look at us as servants, which is the portrait of a dude in the bottom of a ship with the paddle out of sight, under rowing. And as the captain says, here's where we're going, he rows. Nobody knows his name. He is a servant. Where are you serving? Whose feet are you washing? Have you reached the place where you're really freed up enough because you know who you are and you like who you are and you can be who you are and you know your identity 
that no matter what your title says, you can lay it aside for the sake of the gospel. Week after week, I drive on these grounds, and I see Don, and I see Danny, and I see Jeremy, and I see Chuck, and I see these dudes out there with those yellow sweatshirts that say the cross, and I see those guys putting out cones, and I don't ever see anybody stopping going, you preach the strongest sermon that I've seen today. Not with words, but with action, with consistency, with compassion. Those guys are preaching in the parking lot every Sunday, and some of us never hear it. The people serving with our kids and Patrick and others and greeters, they're, they're, they're preaching sermons that none of us hear, but they're doing it with their lifestyle. St. Francis said, preach the gospel, and when necessary, use words. Servants are not word heavy only. So you've got to ask the question, where am I serving? Who am I serving? I'll wrap it with this. So I wrote my own little piece to the story of the four people. Anybody and everybody is somebody at the cross. We have never met a nobody. Anytime a job needs to be done at the cross, anybody and everybody helps somebody do it with a generous heart. When somebody serves anybody, everybody's blessed. Somebody, usually everybody, will pray and help anybody who is hurting. And when somebody needs help, everybody knows that anybody will give and serve. I'm thankful that everybody's story matters and that anybody may be used at any given time to encourage somebody that's in the body.